0: Hi. Hi. This is Julie Bowen.
1: I'm Chad Sanders.
0: And welcome to Quitters, the podcast. Who are we talking to today, Chad?
1: Today we talked to Mayam Bialik. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Good. You
0: did. I had been saying it wrong for years. I said Mayam, and it's Mayam.
1: I actually really, really like this interview. It was the first interview after our first fight.
0: Our first dust-up, and we promised to sort of live out loud in real time. And for those of you who were listening along, we had a disagreement about hosting styles, Mm -hmm. and I said you had to get in there and get involved.
1: I was trying to—I don't know what I was trying to do, but I wasn't liking (laughs) the pace, and I didn't want to have to force my way in on conversation. I do think that after Julie and I had it out over this, I received Julie's point, which is that— That is sort of a part of this whole game of this whole dynamic is you've got to kind of exert your will on a conversation. So going into this interview, I came in with a full head of steam because I felt challenged. She was the perfect person for us to interview after we had had that tension because she operates on such a high frequency.
0: Yeah, I could interview her for a year. So smart. So funny, so inquisitive. I mean, she has her doctorate in neuroscience. She knows all about the brain. And we had the best discussion about what is happening in your brain when you are actively trying to quit something. Yes. I thought that was a really great conversation and one that is really applicable to everyone.
1: I also loved that she is able to balance being human, being emotional, being spiritual, being religious with being... Incredibly intelligent and incisive and researched. Mm-hmm. She feels like a person who is exploring every corner of her life,
0: yeah. not an unexamined life by any means. Also, we had a nice Columbo moment at the end, a little hand on the doorknob when all of a sudden a guest reveals a little something extra. Oh, yeah. So listen all the way to the end to find out Mayam's Columbo moment, and here she is.
1: Here she is, Mayam
0: Bialik. Welcome to The Quitter's Podcast, Maya Bialik. We are very, very excited to talk to you today. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. I'm most excited because I really want to pick your brain, not only about the things that you have quit and (laughs) the quits that you want to quit, but about what happens in your brain when you decide to try and build a new neural pathway.
2: I can talk about all those things. (laughs) You can.
1: Can I say why I'm excited? Also, hi Maya. Um, I'm Chad. Hi, Chad. I am excited because you have a lot of Hollywood outsider imposter syndrome <laughs> stuff, and I have that too.
2: I have insider imposter syndrome. I have outsider. Imp- I got all the imposter syndromes.
1: Yeah, you do. I want to know about it.
2: Oh yeah, I have all the things. I mean,
1: I don't know where to start. You said that you spent, like, 12 years outside of this prism with the normal people. (laughs) Why did you come back in here with the non-normal people?
2: Well, you know, I was a child actor. So I started acting professionally at 11 and a half, and I was on a series from 14 to 19. That was an interesting way to grow up. I did. I left the industry for 12 years. I went to college. I went to grad school. I met the person that I eventually married. I had two kids. I was out in the world. And I came back for a really ridiculous reason. I ran out of health insurance. I had a toddler and a newborn. I was a grad student, as was my husband at the time. We were married. And our insurance was running out. I've never acted as an adult. You know, last time I had acted was, you know, formally when I was 19. I did a couple episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm in those years when I was in college. But I figured if I can just get insurance, like if I can just get a couple guest spots, you get your SAG insurance back, I was going to try. I had never seen The Big Bang Theory. I thought it was a game show. I sort of accidentally (laughs) got back into the industry Did not think I would be a regular on a TV show. Like, I was teaching. I was teaching neuroscience. I was teaching high school biology in the homeschool community. I tutored piano. I tutored Hebrew. I was that mom with a baby strapped to her chest who had hair down to my butt and had no idea what bra size I was anymore because it didn't matter. So, like, I was out. And just when I think I'm out, they pulled me back in. (laughs) And here I am.
1: For insurance. (laughs) Yeah, for
0: insurance. For money. Which makes sense. So, you've had a couple of quits. You quit Hollywood.
2: And then... Can we talk about the word quit? Well, you changed it up. Well, no. And obviously, I'm not trying to change the title of your podcast, but... What? You know, (laughs) it's funny because there are pivots that we make in life or there are decisions that we make. And the way that I often internalize those things is I quit. Like, when I left the industry, let's say, to go to grad school, to me that didn't feel like quitting, right? Because I was like, I'm on top. I can do what I want, and I'm choosing to go to school. Oh, I met someone, and we're going to make babies. That was great. But being in academia... And feeling this is not necessarily the best use of my skill set in the way that most people are using it, meaning you have to be in it to win it. What does that mean? The decision to sort of quit academia was the one that sort of feels the most painful because... I wanted to be home with my kids as opposed to doing a postdoc or starting a lab, which is what you're supposed to do. When I kind of quit the industry to go to grad school, it had different momentum. But when it's like, everybody's on this path and I don't feel like I can compete. I don't feel like I have the brain to be like, I'm going to run a lab. I was not that personality. I had kids and I was like, I kind of just want to be home with them. And that felt like, Oh, you wasted your degree.
1: Ooh. And
2: so I think those are the things for me that trigger that quitting. That feeling of it being, exactly, like I'm knocked down.
1: You said, I didn't feel like I could compete. And sometimes I find that this Hollywood thing is like, if you're not scratching and clawing somebody out of your way and pulling somebody's leg back down a mountain so you can get to the top of it, then you're not going to make it.
2: I think that is part of it. When you think about what do I want to do with my life? A lot of times we don't think about the lifestyle and the personality style that's necessarily required. Everybody's like, oh, my Bialik, she got a PhD and she's so smart. I was like the dumbest person in my class. And I'm not saying that my class was dumb, but I'm saying that I was not a natural scientist. I clawed my way into science as someone who came to it late in life. I was literally struggling to keep up. I originally wanted to go to med school. I didn't have the grades. My brain wouldn't hold the kind of categories of information in the way that you have to hold it to regurgitate it and take the mcats and get to med school did you try that do you go down that route and then abandon chip yeah i was a, <laughs> you're like wow your whole life has been quitting yeah i was pre-med also i was raised by this mom who was like you can do anything put your mind to right. it you can run the world and i'm like yes i can and i was like oh no organic chemistry was you know you cannot even get a b
1: You're saying those other people were smarter, but...
2: They were also more resilient emotionally, and I think that's part of it, too. I didn't have that in me. There are certain that you can hit the milestones. You can defend your thesis, but what you're talking about is, can I cut it? Do I want... To keep getting knocked down. And the fact is, academia is not that different from the industry. It is a lot of similar stuff, especially in the sciences. It's hard to be a woman. If you're attractive, they say you slept your way to the top. If you're not, it's like, oh, she can't get a man. She might as well be a scientist. In academia? Totally.
1: I really want to boil this down, though, (laughs) because I'm stuck on the idea. Is it that they were smarter or is it that they just wanted to?
2: No. I'm really thinking this could apply to anything, right? You go in with passion. Mm. But what it is really about is a different kind of resilience. In our industry, it is speaking up. It's knowing your worth. It's knowing when to take your clothes off, when not to take your clothes off. I think that that's part of the struggle is I thought if I wanted it bad enough, I mean, like, I'm going to cry, It's not that different from dating, right? You think if I love them enough, right? They're going to be what I want and it's going to work. Right. But the fact is there are so many other components that are part of the interactions we have, whether it's a relationship for work or an intimate relationship. Me wanting it bad enough, I thought was going to see me through. And what it did is it saw me to a certain level Mm. and then I was like, oh, but I'm still not the person that I wanted to be in this position.
0: And you didn't know it until you got there?
2: No. It's kind of like the first three months of a relationship. This is great. I found this person. Right. And sure, I was in grad school for seven years, and I did my undergrad for five. You keep it going. Also, having kids was also, oh my gosh, I care more than I thought I would about being home. There's not a right or wrong way to do it. Some women don't want to do that, and that's totally fine. But for me, I can't try and do a postdoc if I also want to be nursing on demand. It's just not going to happen. Right, right.
0: Sorry, Chad, you wanted to say something.
1: No, this is great. I was literally going to say, you're smart. I came here. I got so ready over these last 12 hours because I know your story. I know you're kind of a nerd. And my ego is in my brain. And I'm like, this is a smart off. Here we go. Not actually.
0: (laughs) And then look at her. She rolls over and shows you her soft underbelly and says she's going to cry.
1: So what specific part of that was the part you were going to cry about?
2: Well, it's the part that hurts so badly when you find out something's not for you Mm. or that it's not a perfect fit. Mm. I think that's why when I think of quitting, right, that's what it feels like. It's almost like the decision was made for me. I'm the one who has to be, okay, I'm not going to apply for postdocs.
0: But you had to drive that car into the wall. Correct. To find out. You can't make that decision... 20 yards
2: down. You have to actually crash into the wall. That's why, also speaking of having kids, that's a decision you cannot go back on.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't undo it. Right.
2: You can outsource, obviously, certain aspects mm-hmm. of it. But yeah, with academia, it was also being a public person. The expectations are so high. Like, Maya Bialik is getting her PhD. And then, of course, you hear, oh, you wasted it. You wasted it. And you were home with your kids.
0: Did you ever have a period in your academic life when you stopped being Mayim when kids had (laughs) aged out? You know what I mean? You were teaching kids that were too young to have really related to Blossom, which was, you know, your kid star TV Mm -hmm. show. Because I know my kids would recognize you from Big bang. Sure. But when you were on Blossom, I mean that was my and Bialik. Mayim Bialik. Right. It was everywhere all the time. So did you ever have a period where you were just my and the professor or my and the
2: teacher and not Oh, weren't you Blossom? I feel like I'm in therapy now. (laughs) The answer is no. And this is not, oh, feel bad for my MBLing. There was a point, for example, when I was TAing, when I was a teacher's assistant in college, I was TAing undergrads. I was a grad student. Yeah, They didn't know me. I wasn't on Big Bang yet. You know, it was this kind of in-between zone but still, there was always that guy in the front row who's like, I loved you in beaches. <laughs> and, right. There's always there's <laughs> that There's always <one>. that guy. <laughs> and also, professors knew me. In my first final, the first quarter I was at UCLA, a professor brought his kids to my final <gasps> so they could meet me. They took off school so that they could meet me. They were little. <laughs> Wait, what?
1: Do you like that or do no! you hate that? I needed or something to do well on
2: my final. <laughs>
1: So here's the paradox that I don't understand. Just from the dossier that we got about who you are and things you say.
0: It was the Steele dossier.
1: Yes. And I want to be clear. I'm outside of your zone of jurisdiction, right? As a celebrity. But I'm looking in and I'm saying, well, this person, just like me, is saying, I don't fuck with this Hollywood stuff. They do a weird dance. I don't like it. I don't feel included. And yet, here I am trying Mm -hmm. to get in the party. But you're really in the party. So what's up with that?
2: I don't mean to get all artsy, but I think also as an actor person, you're kind of constantly at the whim of other people's material. I can't act by myself in my room. I mean, I can't, right. but in terms of what, you know, your career is as an actor, you're essentially at the mercy of an industry that has its own standards. As humans, it's never enough. We always want more. Yeah, And I think that there are certain brains that can turn off certain aspects. Mm. There are people who are like, I'll just take the paycheck. I don't care, right? Right. My brain won't let me do that. I always want it to be better, sharper, faster, funnier. That's just sort of a personality thing. But I also think that it's that same personality that feels much more deeply surrounding loss, failure, right, <laughs> quitting.
0: You feel that empathetic, sensitive part of your brain is more fired up.
2: As in all aspects of life, there are people with different kind of capacities, and I wish I had more of that MD-PhD personality, but what I found is that, you know, I just directed my first movie, and I still was like, imposter syndrome. I take that into my life in relationships with my kids, whether I'm in academia, whether I'm in acting, so that's sort of what comes out of me, no matter where you put me. You know, I'm a people pleaser. I'm a perpetual
1: actor. Why do you wish you had that other thing? Who cares about that other thing?
2: Because I cry all the time.
1: (laughs) I mean, why do you wish you had the MDP, like the thing that you left behind? Why do you wish you had that? You said it wasn't for you.
2: I want all the candy. Mm. It's not that I don't want other people to have candy. (laughs) There's a feeling that it's never enough. And I'm sure it goes back to childhood stuff. I'm sure there's, you know, some depth in here to mine. I don't want to say that I'm malcontent, not that several people haven't told me that who I've dated. That's my drive, Mm. is towards more. I want it all. I want to be the person who can do anything. And I want to believe that I can, but one of the most humbling things about existing is getting out of your parents' home, out of your parents' head and being like, oh— I'm a fallible human. I'm going to mess up all the time. Sometimes I'm not going to be good enough. Sometimes I'm not going to be pretty enough. Sometimes they won't pick me. Sometimes he won't pick me.
0: But Maya, I got to know you someone on your podcast, which was, amazing. <laughs> I got to know that I've been saying her name wrong for <laughs> 20 years. It's Mayum. It is Mayum. It's not Mayum. <laughs> it's not Mayhem. It's Mayum. But I've seen you hiking at the park. Mm-hmm. I've seen you with your kids. I've seen you on the red carpet. I've seen you at parties. And you have certain things that you don't compromise on. So as much as you say, I want right. all the candy, <laughs> I want it all, you are not willing to dress provocatively. Right. You say you want all the candy, but at the same time, there is this other part of you that is at odds with that five-year-old
2: that is screaming for more more more. I hold a lot of these contradictions, you know, these contradictory mm-hmm. things. On the one hand, it's true, I am like a people pleaser. How do I make you happy mm-hmm. and how do I make you laugh? And on the other hand, yeah, there are things that are important to me that I'm not going to compromise on. My life has been a balance, I mean, I think all of our lives are, of having confidence And also supreme lack of confidence.
0: Ah, But you have a grounded spirituality and a religious practice. I do. And I'd be interested to hear where Chad intersects on this one, too, because I don't. And (laughs) I will tell you, without a core belief system, which can come from a family or it can Mm -hmm. come from a lot of different places, a church, a religion, a philosophy, you're saying a lot of us hold these contradictions. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that just get sucked wholesale into Should I get bigger boobs? Should I work out more? What about if I dye my hair this way? That becomes the entire drive and looking at the social media and how many clicks and likes do I have. So it isn't everybody that has that.
2: I'm very curious what Chad has to say. I have the same kind of fears and insecurities, I think, that a lot of women in particular do. It's a conscious choice that I make to not engage in social media because it is so upsetting to me. I feel like I can't compete. Mm. That's the essence of that quitting feeling, right? That you start tapping into. I can't compete, peace out. There's a certain amount of forced regulation I have to do so that I can still wake up every day and be like, I'm okay. A lot of that for me does come from a grounding in a consciousness of something larger than all of us, even the people who don't believe there's still gravity. We all believe in gravity, right? For example, (laughs) I do believe there is a consciousness that understands my path, everybody's path better than I do. I can tap into something That is a notion of safety and comfort and companionship. My concept of God spirituality is we all believe in gravity. I may choose to recognize the beauty of the universe with ritual because I belong to a people that are thousands of years old. Or I may choose to just say like, oh, the sun came up again. For me, it's the same belief system. My rabbi once said, if God didn't exist, we'd have to invent God (laughs) because we do. We want a sense of comfort and not being alone. I know that there is something that I can tap into that makes me believe that it will be okay, even if it's not the okay that I would have planned. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's really well said.
2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: I'm projecting this on you a little bit, but I think, you know, you're smart and talented also, and you have sort of a conquering spirit a little bit. Oh. And you also said you're competitive. So I think a part of you is I'm not going to give power to the thing that they think is the decorum here. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair assessment? It is
2: fair, but it is not without a tremendous amount of angst. Of course, of course. And self-doubt, you know?
1: Yeah, no doubt. I can see that on you in two seconds, just in how you talk about your experience. But I do agree, knowing that something bigger than me, knowing that God is in control of all of this, it takes a lot of pressure off of me. I don't think of power or progress as incremental. I think of it as very binary. Mm -hmm. If God has the power, then nobody else has any. (laughs) And so that means just we'll choose my number one enemy most of the time. Studio exec, (laughs) you have none. If you think my project's not going to go, that's fine for you to think that. But it's going to go. Because God said so. It might have to go through another vessel.
2: Yeah. You can replace the word God with the universe, with energy. It doesn't have to be this sort of, you know, monotheistic Judeo-Christian concept. If you believe that the universe has two answers, and instead of yes and no, the answers are yes and not now. Ah. You will be in so much more acceptance of the daily goings on. And it creates a lot less stress than the way I was living before I kind of had that consciousness.
0: When did you develop this then?
2: Once I left my parents' home, I went to college at 19. That was kind of the first stage. But honestly, that decade after leaving one's parents' home, especially if you grow up with mental illness and with the kind of challenges that I grew up in, it took about a decade to start wiggling through seeing what my 20s were like as an independent person. And really, my journey began, yeah, about 29. I started going to 12-step programs to seek support for the kind of childhood I was raised in. But I have utilized the rooms of the 12 steps in terms of acceptance and a connection with something bigger than me that has a larger plan rather than the one that a lot of us are raised with, right? If I do this, I'll get this prize. Or if I pray the right way... I'll get the man of my dreams. But that's the child
0: in all of us that thinks that we're in control. Correct. It's that grandiosity of the six-year-old that says, oh, it must be my fault if my parents hit me because I didn't do it right. And if I am good enough, I get candy. Correct. And that six-year-old is driving the bus for so many of us. (laughs) Well put. <laughs> I think of her all the time. and look at her and go, what do you need? Mm. What do you need? Because I'm a grown-ass woman. What do you need right now? And usually it's just sort of this acknowledgement yep. slowing down and saying, yeah, you want all the candy. You want someone to love you. And once I can see it in a six-year-old yep. version of myself next to me, it's easier to go, but I'm the grown-up. I'm not going to let that happen.
2: And this is a great place to, you know, start talking more about brain stuff. You know, if you want to kind of like go to that level because there's nothing that just happens. Mm-hmm. Without there being a physiological or chemical response or activation. So even emotions, that's the release of neurotransmitter. Right. You know, I hate to tell people that I can break down love if you'd like. You know, it's <laughs> like a thing. And that's not to say that I don't believe in some soul component and some connection that is outside of the description of the world of science. But what you just talked about, that is essentially a dip into mindfulness. Right. Because what you're doing is you're saying. My conscious state is being hijacked by a state from another time, another place. Yes. And the ability to then filter that out sort of practically and also the emotional processing that comes when you say, I'm not that child anymore, that's where maturity comes from that we all want. Smoke should be coming out of your ears on a daily basis. That's how hard our brains are working.
1: My neuroscience quitting related question is this. It's when I think about quitting stuff, which I do all the time, one reason why it's scary is because... I don't know what's going to fill up the abyss yeah. on the other side of the thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, my imagination will fill it up sure. with something bad.
2: What we imagine is almost always worse than what actually is. Almost always. Yeah.
1: I would say it's always different <laughs> than what we imagine. Sure. And usually it's worse. So what's <laughs> happening in my actual brain when I'm doing that, when I'm not ready to give up glasses and put on contacts? So,
2: <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> all right. I have a friend who's, his brain is kind of like a computer. And he's known as a very kind of—I don't want to say unemotional. He's a loving person. He's a great dad. He goes out in the world, and he's of service in his profession. But when it comes to the way he approaches interpersonal stuff, it's very, very detached from the kind of complex emotional processing that I do, right? Mm-hmm. I got to talk it out, think about how it applies to my childhood, go to therapy. If it's a relationship thing, like, we go together, we work it out. And for some people, it's much simpler, That's the difference in brains. And it's our environmental upbringing. It's how we were raised. So for some people, the logical brain is more able to take over.
0: But is that because as a child that was
2: encouraged, is that because those neural pathways were reinforced? I will say with this person that I'm thinking of in particular, yes, I would describe his childhood as not chaotic, not tumultuous— For example, there was no alcoholism. There was no corporal punishment. He was not physically hit. So I'm just painting the picture. And I'm not saying these are like the fail-safe things. But I'm saying when I think about his childhood versus mine, it's no wonder that I rev high. And I have, Chad, what's called a hypervigilant brain. Mm. I have a brain that is always scanning. If the door opens, I have to turn around. Even if I know who's going to be coming in, and that is my brain's way of functioning in the world. So when you come to these things that we're talking about, you know, decision-making, being able to separate an emotional experience that, as Julie said, may also be literally from another time, my brain doesn't filter that well. If you have ADHD, your brain is less likely to filter those things out. And so you are bowled over more often. If I go to the supermarket, it's a very large production because I am incredibly overstimulated by people, things, sounds, social interaction. I'm just a hoot, you know, in the DSM-5 categories. (laughs) So for me, I can want to have the supermarket be a completely not traumatic experience, I can cognitively say there's nothing wrong. It's just the supermarket. But I have a very, very strong emotional loop. It's also what makes me me. It's what makes me able to feel so deeply. It's when I see homeless people on the street, I will buy them food. It's the thing that makes me a civil rights advocate. It's the thing that makes me teach my children about injustice in the world. You get the whole package. Do you think, though, that they have to go together? No. And one of the things that therapy teaches me is better ways to manage these things so that it doesn't feel out of control. There is a level of support that I choose to get from medication that makes transitions easier emotionally, cognitively, I wonder like 10,000 years ago, they didn't have Lexapro. What would people do, you know? But here we are.
1: I want to drop a pin on hyper... Hyper
2: Hypervigilance, yeah.
1: Okay. I want to drop a pin right there because I relate, (laughs) but I want to talk about the other thing, which is your friend and how his brain is (laughs) wired. Yeah. I used to work at Google, which I was going to get into this conversation one way or another, no matter what. The bosses there all claim to be wired like him.
2: Mm, Totally.
1: They think that's the best shit in the world is to be wired logically and to live outside your body. And I sometimes wonder, (laughs) do you guys have sex? How do you guys dance? Do you ever go to a basketball game? I do find that especially Western countries Mm -hmm. really value that wiring of brain. Yeah. Why? What is that about? Oh,
2: because it's very productive and it doesn't get stopped.
1: Productive toward what? Well, okay,
2: productive in the Western sense. So if you're thinking of a Western capitalist country, we value things like early independence. That's sort of the obsession with the cry it out method and weaning children. You know, how early can you say your alphabet, right? Like that's like a really big thing that people talk about at the playground. Like, did your kid say Mm -hmm. the alphabet yet? As if a two-year-old needs to. We as a society value, quote, productivity, more money, more esteem, the gathering of more things, consumerism, money, property, and prestige. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, those things. Why is it like that?
2: I have no particular authority. This is just me trying to figure it out. This is the phrase that I always come back to. It takes all kinds. Right. And what that means is we have evolved as a species to be able to build civilizations and form governments and religions and make amazing art. That's who we are as Homo sapiens sapiens, right? But you cannot have people of all one kind. And we know this because if you believe in evolution, which I tend to, we need variation to have new, to have novelty, to have progress. So I'm not saying I'm more advanced than, let's say, my friend. And I'm not saying he's more advanced than me. But what I know is it takes all kinds. It takes certain people in this society. And that's true no matter where you are in the world, just evolutionarily. It takes people who can interpret other people's dreams. It takes people who know how to help women give birth. It takes people to know how to care for a sick child and when to let a baby go. That's the structure of a lot of society has been how do we keep the species going? And then it takes people who are hunters And who will not be felled. They will not be brought down by fear. Right. Mm. Because if we are brought down by fear, we don't have meat to eat. We starve. Correct. (laughs) That level of vulnerability, especially as a feminist, as a scientist, when I had my first child, I had a very long and difficult labor and I was a home birth. That was a transport to a hospital. Like, I had a very intense, insane, fantastic, crazy experience. It brings you to your knees. And I remember at that moment, I was like, oh... And not that everyone needs to have a baby to learn these lessons. For me, though, I could not fight the bear right now. Right. You would need somebody to protect you right now. Correct. I need a community. And if I can't nurse, I need her to. And if I can't hunt for my food, that's what that person's for. And then I need someone to hold my hand when I'm crying because I'm in pain. I need that person, right? And there's a lot in here also about the structure of just society and what women used to do for other women that— our society really doesn't do anymore, right? Like childcare, yeah. Birth and labor was the domain of women for almost all of history. So there's all these shifts that happen in our culture, but you still have that variability. And we need it, you know, we need it.
1: You have answered the question with great authority. <laughs> and I dropped a pen, if I may just go back to hyper-vigilance. it. The hypervigilance. How did you scan this particular environment <laughs> as you've been sitting here? Because you've set a couple boundaries. I've noticed them and I like yeah. how you do it. And I'm like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> Called me a therapist. (laughs) Me and Julie just had a big fight because I was being too passive in our last interview. Mm. So now I'm like, all right, well, here we go. Let's do it. People have different limits on that.
2: Oh, I mean, I do my podcast, Mind Be Alex Breakdown, with Jonathan Cohen, who normally sits here. He's out there now Mm. and Uh says hi, Julie, because he really enjoyed talking to you as well.
0: I really liked him a
2: lot. And let me tell you, if you want to learn about yourself, do a podcast Mm. with another human being because I'll Mm. have episodes that I'm like, well, that went great. Mm. And then we do a debriefing and he's like, the way that you cut me off indicates a lack of respect for my position in this relationship.
0: That's me and Chad, man. And we're finding our way. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm the
2: performer. I will carry this shit through. Right. I will see it. Oh, you're having feelings? We got to move on. Keep it going. Mm. Make it funny. You know, yeah. it does. It takes both types. But in terms of hypervigilance, There's a certain amount of specificity that I have just as a human. But for me, I'm looking like, what is someone's background? I'm that person who's already comparing and despairing. That's what we call it, right? Right.
1: And I'm asking for specificity here. You entered this environment with these two people. We've never met. You ladies.
2: She beat me for an Emmy. We have a whole past. We have a past. I
1: almost said something like that to be funny. It's my
2: favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) But honestly, I'm hugely flattered to get to have this opportunity because oftentimes... I'm comparing myself to what other women in the industry get. Mm. They get to be friends with that one. Why are they out for drinks? Why are they at that event? Why wasn't I invited? I already come into this with a certain amount of humility and gratitude and excitement. I also really appreciate when you meet people in the industry that you can talk to like this, because that is rarer than I think a lot of people people realize. yeah, And that's kind of the fun thing about my podcast. And I'm super curious to see, you know, how yours continues to unfold because there are people that you think it would be awesome to talk to, but they don't want to talk like this. So it's so special when you can find that. My environment's super important. So that lowers your hypervigilance. Totally. Going to new places is scary for me. My younger son is like that. And I used to try and push through it. I used to go to industry parties and I'd get all faputsed, you know, all, all done up. And all like faputsed? Faputsed. Yeah, that's the Yiddish word. <laughs> I'd get all faputsed and I would wonder why I would start crying halfway through the event and feel a tremendous need to leave. Oh, yeah. Or like tear my clothes off. That's called social anxiety. And I didn't even know to name it. When people ask mostly when you do on the weekends, I go to the therapy sessions that I can't go in the week because I'm working. I'm constantly sort of peeling that back so that I know things like I will go to a studio, for example, but yeah, where am I going to park? And what do I do? And what if I'm late? And, blah, blah, and then what do I wear? She can't see me in these pants. I look ridiculous. So those are things that it's better. But already I'm like, why didn't I put on makeup? This light is so bright. I feel so embarrassed. Okay. I should wear glasses. But this is my brain. Right, of course. I should wear glasses because it covers my face but like the screen is too close and my prescription is too strong. But those are all the things. And I'm like, she's in a cute blazer. Should I have worn a cute blazer? That's my brain though. It's constantly talking and often it doesn't say very nice things, but I try to train her. It's the itty bitty shitty committee.
0: (laughs) They're all up there. Judgment row. I want to circle back to when you quit academia and I want to tie this to the brain. Your brain makes... Neural pathways, mm-hmm. and they're stronger when you're younger. Is that right? Um, like, say more. Well, my understanding, it's like a shoots and ladders kind of a situation uh. where in order to survive, we identify things quickly like, oh, tiger coming to eat me. Right. Bad. <laughs> so that you don't have to re-identify the tiger and the danger every time right. you see it. You go, tiger, bad. Got it. Yep. So we have certain things in our brains that get more hardwired than others.
2: Oh, 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 okay. From when you're young. Okay, great. Well, can I just tweak it a little bit? Yes, yes. The idea is that in its formative years, the brain is very plastic. What happens is a pruning process. So you're born with more cells than you need. What happens is in that first year, things start falling away. It's an overcompensation by the universe to see what you need and where you need it. And so this pruning process starts. What do we really, really need in this first year? Mm -hmm. They need human interaction with their primary caregiver. That's literally it. And they need to eat and sleep. In those first years in particular, you lay down a canvas. ...that then the rest of your life is painted on. So early experiences, especially those that are coupled with emotional content, whether that be love and attachment, fear, pain, they're like grooves. And they're deeper the more intensely they are coded for. And what you're talking about in terms of trauma, I just want to kind of make a distinction... What happens with trauma, especially to a young brain or really any significant negative thing, is you get a pathway that can be very easy to keep sliding into. It's like the worst deja vu ever if you have trauma because you keep locking into a path that has been strongly ingrained, especially if it has fear, pain, anger attached to it. And as you get older, what the brain will do is it will start making associations that aren't necessarily relevant. And my boyfriend reminded me of this last night when I got really reactive and upset about something and he was like, that's not me. That's not this. Right. Mm. That's right those pathways become what we call organizing principles. So it could be I'm unlovable. I'm ugly. If I have needs, they won't get met. So I better not have them. Shut up. You deserve it. Those are the organizing principles that then we go into the world with and we're like, who wants to date me? I'm going to swipe this (laughs) way. They look good.
1: (laughs) Is that the fancy scientific way of describing the inner child? Is that the same thing?
2: I actually prefer to call it the timeless child because the inner child concept really rubs me the wrong way. It's like, ooh, she's weak. But when I think of the timeless child, yes, I think scientifically what you're explaining is the part of you that does not forget.
0: Right. So we're going to take it from you, my Bialik. We know that it's different for everybody. There's different brains that are wired different ways. Sure. But for you, when you get to the point in academia, where you go, I am actually walking away from this. What happens in your brain?
2: Well, I can tell you what happens in my body when you just say it. (laughs) It feels like something bursting in not a good way. Really? Just you talking about it. I got chills up the back of my neck. This is a somatic reaction. I've never really talked about it this way. And it is, it's very painful for many of us. When we get in that zone of either I need to quit Or I can't do it. What happens is all of our organizing principles are reaffirmed. So the darkest, saddest parts of you can get poked. And that's where the word quitting can have this negative connotation. It reinforced for me, I've never talked about this, you shouldn't have left acting. You really are just cut out for being told what to do. These are the organizing principles, right? Yeah. I mean, this is what's going on in my head. Someone can make money off of capitalizing on me, and that's an easier path than something I'm not as good at. Ah. So my purpose is to make money for other people. My personal desires or passion or interest didn't cut it, Mayim.
0: So when you had kids, did it give you a way to go back to your organizing principles because you had this thing that needed to be taken care of? So following your passions and your dreams of being a neuroscientist was not as rewarding.
2: But with these kids, you could put them first? Yes, and add hormones, add yeah. a history of mental health challenges, which then keep shifting every time you have a hormonal shift. Oh, yeah. And then add that much as I loved dedicating that time to my children, it's a very different lifestyle. I didn't have a nanny. I was living and breathing these children after getting a doctorate. There's another organizing principle that for me is, in my case, cultural, part of my ethnic makeup, is that I am made to serve other people. I'm made to cook and I'm made to clean, and that's the role of a woman. I learned that by, you know, my grandparents were Eastern European and My mother's mother in particular, that's what I saw. She was parentless and met my grandfather in night school. They didn't speak English. She was brought in to cook and clean and care for his father who had tuberculosis. When I'm home, of course, I still have that PhD. I still was on Blossom. But that's not what you're thinking about. You're thinking like, I'm now living... To serve and like, okay, got to put dinner on the table. Right. So all of these things are opportunities, some might say, for tremendous growth and awareness and appreciation. But for my brain, it went back to the hell am I going to do now? People think I had, like, money from the blossom years. Mm And money wasn't like that then, people. Money was not like that in the 80s and 90s, especially for teenage girls on the first network show about a teenage girl in a lot of years. So I didn't have money to fall back. I didn't have a trust fund. That wasn't my story. So it was like, what next?
0: Are you saying that it wasn't
2: as much quitting Mm -hmm. as going back to your organizing principles? It's a sand trap because on the one hand, I felt really empowered to do this for my kids and for my family. And I do believe for our personalities and our needs, it was right. It's very easy to fall back into feeling like you failed. And part of me is like, gosh, if academia came easier to me, if I was more resilient, maybe I would have been like, I'm putting the kids in daycare. This is awesome. I'm gonna have a lab and I'm gonna be on the cover of Neuron. In an alternate universe, what's that Mayam like? But ultimately, I'm grateful for where I am. However it was going to turn out, that's where I am.
1: When you do the voice, is there like a specific person in your life you're imagining saying that? Because I just like to know that because I have a person such as that.
2: No, I don't think of a particular person. And, you know, as a comedian person, I have a lot of voices I do that I didn't know. Like, apparently I have generic dude boyfriend voice when he's being annoying. It's a lot of the mean girls of UCLA. And I had a great time at UCLA, but there was a lot of these super go-getter females who were just powerhouse academics and they were amazing and got A's on every OCHEM test. That's like a whole other level of this conversation is sort of the expectations we have about ourselves, our gender. Am I a girl like those girls. I don't look like those girls. I don't act like those girls. I like Mm -hmm. football and beer, and they want to go get manicures. Sometimes you feel like you're quitting your gender (laughs) on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) If you had the options that kids have now, where they're like pants, skirts, or something in the middle, I'm not gender non-binary. I am a cis female and identify as such. But if you had given me the choice at 13 to be other, I would have checked that box just because it was so uncomfortable to be a girl. Right? It took me so long to grow into that. Right. I would have liked four or five years of, hey, don't
2: bother me. I'm in the middle. And I think obviously the tricky word is choice because, you know, for certain people, and again, I'm speaking as a scientist. Right. I know what you're saying. Right. I have a 13 and 16 year old and it's so funny to hear them be like, Mama, why do you like sports cars? And Dada likes theater. (laughs) Oh, um, because people are different. And we didn't have names for that. This is a generation that they do. They like, want, and need that kind of structure of nomenclature. I don't feel a need to be like, there's a label for the fact that sometimes I love to be on the red carpet in a dress, but then other times I would want to wear a suit. But I actually think that's a fun game. Like, ask your kids— ...to find the label that you are, you know? Right. Fitting
0: into female paradigms can be really overwhelming, especially as a child star. Totally. And a female child star who does not fit the blonde, blue-eyed,
2: Cheerios-eating little girl. Totally. I had this conversation literally at work yesterday... I was wearing—whatever, it was a dress, and it was, like, a little bit tight. And, you know, you could see a little bit of the juicy bits. Like, just the juicy bits on the side of you. Boobs? No. Oh, the- you
0: mean, like, love-handly areas.
2: Yeah, you're me. Got it, got it. Your flesh. Right. I was talking to a woman at work who I respect, and she's a behind-the-camera person. And I was like, I'm feeling self-conscious. The first thing she said, well, are you wearing a shaper? how do I answer this? And I said, I'm not. I actually don't really believe in wearing shapers. And she said, then you're perfect and you look perfect. Get out there. <sighs> and I thought that was so interesting because if I would have said to her, no, let me go try a shaper, she would have been like, okay, and then let's reassess. Right. Right. But my greatest fear was that I'd put on the shaper and it would still look the same. So what I did was it was that paradigm shift of exactly how I am is a choice that I'm making. It's not going to look smooth. It's not going to look like those other ladies. And I'm going to be okay with that, and I'm going to go out there and make people laugh. So which organizing principle, (laughs) what was reinforced in that moment? So for me, that's a victory to be able to say... I'm
0: going to go out there anyway. So it was acting against your organizing principles and doing it
2: anyhow. Correct. I mean, that's what we're all dealing with. Even if you don't know it, we're all dealing with our organizing principles bumping up against other people's organizing principles and then trying to meet in the middle. So if you're, let's say, a woman who's very insecure about your body and you're with a partner who is very critical of your body, that's going to reinforce that. Right. And sometimes we get into relationships where we're like, why do I feel like shit all the time? I think they love me. Or you can be with a person Person, like I happen to be now who literally won't even flinch when I'm like I think I like like won't won't even acknowledge it and that's been so healing for me because I can spin all on my own right you need anybody to help you I don't need help and that's been really healing for me.
1: You just said it. You can spin all on your own. I was thinking about the roulette of identities that you have inhabited and jobs and pursuits and all Mm -hmm. these things and things that you've left behind, too. Is there any one that feels like it sort of fits you the best? Do you consider yourself? I am this thing, this underlined title.
2: Oh, gosh. It's a hard question. What standard are we judging it by? Chuck Lorre once said to me, as long as there is television, you will be on it. Mm. Whoa! This is the third sitcom I've been on where I have a prominent role and responsibility. That's bizarre to me. People want me in that little TV screen. They don't want me on the big screen. I've tried. They want me on that screen. They want me in their kitchen while they're making dinner. Or they want me in the living room.
1: What's the meaning of that?
2: I mean, I don't know what the meaning of it is. I know
1: you've spun your head on it, though. I'm sure you have.
2: That is a place that I fit. Being a mom is, for me, as a human being, it feels like the most important thing, you know, is trying Mm -hmm. to grow two progressive liberal feminist boys, right, into whatever Mm -hmm. they want to be and do. So that's enormously significant. I have other things that I wish fit. The thing that I love the most, that I believe I am best at, you can't laugh, organizing other people's spaces and helping them get rid of things is something that I have discovered I am very, very good at, and it brings me a level of joy and satisfaction that is unmatched. I do it For friends and people close to me, and often for their children, the process of analyzing what a person needs emotionally from their space and being able to help them realize that in a way that is gentle and honors their sentimentality, their hoarding issues, whatever it is. I have never had a thing in my life that I both was good at, this good at, and loved this much with no reservations. I read Marie Kondo's book. This was years ago. I was just out of a breakup and a friend recommended this book to me and it opened up space in my physical life and therefore opened up space in my brain. And it was the beginning of a journey of cleansing that literally I've started sharing with other people. So for me, that is so bizarre also that we get all this far in life, right? Right. A thousand years ago, I'd be dead. I'd be an old lady or like I'd be sitting like, <laughs> anybody want advice before I kick it? But for me, it tells me a lot about me. There's an energy to that kind of work. There's a purpose. There's a connection with humans and there's solitary work, which I love. It's physical. I get, you know, out of my body and into other space. And I know that sounds like a weird thing to talk about in this podcast, but to me, in a fantasy world could I see this being the business that I take on 100%
1: it's super on topic it's telling people what shit in their house they need to quit
2: I'm passionate about it I wanted to ask you
0: Mayim is there anything you would like to quit
2: I quit smoking cigarettes over COVID I've never talked about this whoa that is hard
1: can you tell us like one morsel of how it has felt to not smoke cigarettes anymore
2: It's a very hard thing to quit because it satisfies a binding of anxiety Uh that now just lives. It's been released. So, what I've learned is shit just moves around. You will try and fill it with anything. And in 12 step programs, they call it the God shaped hole. And you keep trying to find the thing that's going to fill it. So, alcohol obviously is what the big book of AA talks about, but you can fill it with drugs, you can fill it with nicotine, you can fill it with sugar, you can fill it with sex. You can fill it with work. You can work that like a drug. And people do. I mean, I've done it. But for me, when you take away that thing that allows you also to leave situations, it gives you distance. But for people especially who are smoking to fill a need, it is its own kind of self-soothing meditation of sorts. What I started noticing and the reason that I made the decision to quit is it started being, oh, it's time to go to sleep, but let me sneak one more in. And what that is, is the general loneliness, anxiety of the witching hour that we all experience. Everybody's got a different way to do it, whatever works. And that's because whatever's going on, we don't want that right and it's unconscious for a lot of people but when it became conscious for me this was the beginning of COVID I was like I'm scared to get gas and I'm gonna walk in and buy cigarettes like I'm not gonna go online and start ordering cartons of cigarettes I wasn't even (laughs) that heavy of a smoker and it kind of came out of that my kid found cigarettes Mm -hmm. and that was also a real moment of reckoning did you lie of course not no we don't lie what do you think I'm going to say? We They're don't. Julie Bowens? <laughs> well, I don't know. they mean, one of the workmen. No, we don't lie. Mm-hmm. There was a certain mirroring that happened in his disappointment. Mm. Mm. And yeah, I don't believe in lying to children, which it's very difficult. I mean, a lot of times I wish I would lie. But no, I did not lie.
1: This might be a concept I would better understand as a parent, and I'm not one. But you were hiding them, so...
2: I- Keeping them private,
0: Chad, and there's a difference. And you didn't want to set a bad example for your kid.
1: What is the distinction that you're drawing between hiding them and then when being (laughs) found out, telling the truth about them?
2: Oh, well, I do believe there are things that are private and that is not a secret, but there are age-appropriate times for children to know things. My kids know, for example, that I have smoked pot. I'm honest with them in an age-appropriate way, but with cigarettes... The fact that I felt like a teenager that was caught was an indication to me that the privacy I thought I was having was really shame. Oh. And I wouldn't have that kind of awareness, to be honest, if I hadn't been through therapy. I would have gone into defensive mode. And look, people can lie to their kids. It's fine. For me, I knew that the fact that I have this level of shame, and then I had to push through all of that to quit. It's not easy. How immediately after
0: getting busted by your kid did you start the process of quitting or was it immediate?
2: No, it was not immediate because I tried to rationalize it and like I spoke to the family therapist and she's like, you're allowed to be an adult and do whatever you want and he needs to learn to manage feelings. But it didn't sit right with me. Mm. I don't want to feel guilty when having a cigarette. If I can't get over it, I need to move on from it and it doesn't feel good. It was binding anxiety. It was becoming a crutch and it was becoming the thing that I did to try and keep that anxiety at bay. But I was living cigarette to cigarette. I really was.
1: Wow. Wow. Were you planning to tell us this today no. or did that just come? No. Yeah, because what a reveal.
2: That the notion of quitting that we think of as this emotional decision. Cigarettes is a great example. That's a physiological quitting. I think it was Hunter S. Thompson who said every cell when it's addicted to something, you have to wait for every cell to stop being addicted. And that takes time. And you have to replace it with other things. Anytime you're quitting something, even if it's habit, there is a process in your brain that is starting to have to compensate because there are rewards you get from everything you do. Mm -hmm. And there are things that don't feel good when you stop doing them. Or Mm -hmm. you remember how much pain this thing brought you and that's why you're quitting. So then you need those hormones and all of the neurotransmitters to start compensating. But quitting, it is a process of a shift in your brain, which is chemicals. So of course, decision making is hard. Because making a decision to quit is also going to be clouded by all of the other processes that we talked about. And every cell in your body saying, don't. Correct. Don't. We're rationalizing this. And that's usually fear. And that's what I want to learn to do better at. So that if I need to quit something, I can do it from a more centered place and not act from a place of fear.
0: Mm. I just want to say thank you for your honesty Your fucking intelligence, your
2: generosity
0: of spirit and the way that you share your intelligence is really unrivaled. Thank you. I've always known you were talented, but the way that you include us in the way your brain works in this conversation is really, really generous. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you.
2: It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Chad, it was really nice connecting with you.
1: Likewise. Thank you.